Now to growing concerns about you must stay at home. Total cases in the U.S. now top 8.4 million. The new variant of coronavirus is out of control. I hate you, 2020. Well, that was a pile of crap. I know. However, we did see some amazing tech companies emerge from the crisis. And this podcast is me going around the world talking to founders of these companies. And some of these founder stories are absolutely amazing and can't wait to share them with you. So, from San Francisco to Sydney, my name's Ben Kenwright, introducing the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club podcast. Okay, so let's take a little scoot over to Tel Aviv. Today we have a Mr. Yoav Vilna, who is the CEO and co-founder at Walnut. And to introduce Yoav and Walnut, let's put it this way. If you're a salesperson right now and you're doing online software demonstrations, then you need to be actively anticipating and watching and excitedly keeping an eye on Walnut because they're about to become your best friends. Uh, and I'm going to let him explain the how and the why. So without any further ado, welcoming Yoav Vilna of Walnut. So hello, Yoav. How are you today? I'm great, Ben. Thanks for having me. I have a feeling you're somewhere probably warmer than I. Just a bit. What, what, uh, tell us where you are. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Tel Aviv right now. Very nice. Used to live in, in London and also in Manhattan, so I know how bad winter can get. But this time, no, it's really nice here. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot worse in, in New York than, uh, than here. But it's down to minus two and it's snowing. And uh, yeah, I'm not one of those people that likes the snow. Unless I can ski on it, I'm not really a fan. So I'm currently very miserable in a lockdown in London. And I've also uh, got a, a leg injury. But anyway, enough uh, enough about my problems. So welcome to the 2020 Entrepreneurs Club, Yoav. Um, been eagerly anticipating this, uh, this interview because Walnut looks very, very interesting. So um, gonna just dive into the brand now and how it all uh, came about and uh, you have also a very interesting chap, so we're going to have lots to talk about with his background today as well. Uh, but looking on the timeline of the business, so you launched around March time officially, but uh, uh, you were in build and then going out to market. And this is kind of one of those definite, we saw COVID and we thought, fuck it, what can we launch right now? So talk me through March last year, um, you were still um, working as the CMO in your previous venture, right? And COVID's hit, the whole world's going crazy, we're going into lockdowns. How did you and the founders team get together and think, right, this is what we're going to do? Right, so yeah, so last, last March, and I can't believe it's been almost a year, um, I was still uh, chief marketing and founding member of a startup that was designed to save kids from bullying and pedophiles on social media, uh, which is a very serious problem. But you know, some things uh, did not work out for everyone there in the founding team, and um, there were some some issues we had to work on, and um, technology speaking, I think that it's going to be more of a API data science type of company, and not necessarily something that requires an, a CMO, uh, which was my thing. Um, so th- during that time, uh, it was the first lockdown, and me and my co-founder now at Walnut, uh, Danny, we started. Uh, thinking about ways to help companies demonstrate their products better because there's always a friction when you're trying to showcase your product uh, in a live demo um, something always breaks uh, sometimes just bad sometimes just bad luck uh, sometimes someone from R&D touched the backhand just a minute before you got on a call um, and sometimes you just have one product that you want to show several different clients and they don't need to see the same product if you want want to sell more 
So we started, we started playing with this idea. Um, and Danny has been through founding his own companies and then selling them to enterprise companies. So he's been on both sides of you know selling to a company and then being on the side that's been sold to. Um, and we just we just built uh, an MVP that was kind of like how you would edit a website on Wix, which is something we all know. Um, but except you would edit your dashboard, like your real SaaS product. Um, and we, we wouldn't imagine how many how many VP sales of, of huge companies um, just fell for it. And they said, listen, if you build us uh, this thing, we will pay for it. So uh, we built it. So you got the buy-in before you spent the money, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we built the MVP with our own judgment and no one promised us that it's going to deliver anything or, or you know, uh, start a journey of any kind. Um, but we built that MVP uh, just out of confidence that, you know, we just had confidence that we're solving a huge problem that no one's going to deny. Like no one in the world is going to tell you that their sales demos work fine. Everyone has a problem with it and everyone would want to sell just a little, a little bit better. Um, so we started with the first, um, our first line of thought was we're solving a real problem. So people are going to want to listen. And if it ends up being the wrong product, we can just, you know, change the product, but the problem remains really tough. So we started building it and we checked the, the responses and they were all so good that we just had to turn it into a company. So understanding the concept, because this is me, this has been the last five years of my life is researching a prospect, customizing a demo, choreographing the demo with my solutions guy, messing something up having to cover our tracks and you know and then you repeat cycle right so a lot of the time if you've got two serious prospects i'm doing that twice a day tops so my whole day is research customize it start again and usually if i'm customizing this account that means that uh no one no other user of that account can use that uh for a, a demo simultaneously so if that's my typical pain points as vp of sales what uh what is walnut I, I can kind of understand, but breaking it down in simple terms, if I have Walnut plugged in this morning, how, what am I doing differently as opposed to that status quo that I just described? Right. So the first and foremost problem is that there isn't any type of knowledge sharing between uh, sales teams. Um, some companies that we all know, and they have hundreds of salespeople, um, you know, if sales if salesperson number twelve wants to do something for a specific client, he has no idea if salesperson number two hundred and twelve has done it before. And if so, um, no one has ever closed the loop of what did it lead to. Um, so that that's one thing that VPs are struggling with, like actual actual information as to what's going on in the demos. It's like a blind spot. And um, the second thing, the amount of resources that you spend as a company, um, you know, the the the, the salesperson. They go and ask the product to add or remove a feature before an important call. Um, they're asking design, can you create a mock-up on InVision? Um, yeah, so it's, it looks a little bit more tailor-made to Microsoft, which I'm speaking to in an hour. Um, they go to the backend, can you not touch? Uh, they go back to the you know, R&D, can you not touch the backend just a second before I'm going on that call? There's a million stuff going on to make sure a safe demo. And companies are spending millions trying to build like sales engineering teams and all kinds of different teams to avoid all these problems. But still, the conversion rate from demos are ridiculously low. So all of these solutions don't really work. Yeah, no, no, I can attest to that, definitely. Um, and there is 
lack of cohesion among sales engineering and salespeople a lot of the time because you know they're different breeds of people right um and uh, the communication is, is often off Salespeople aren't necessarily the most organized so i can see how this is uh straight away solving a lot of pain points um so we've got this great concept you had some buy-in from enterprise uh prospects within the network what's next we're still in like a, i'm presuming there's lockdowns and heavy restrictions happening on the ground in israel uh how do you and and your co-founder actually get to that next stage of product build right yeah that's that's pretty accurate we were doing some of our most important calls on zoom even though we were like a few blocks away here in central tel aviv um, which is never a pleasant way to build a startup um, but on the other hand, you're like 100% focused on that, right? You have nothing else to do. So that also boosted uh, the productivity of, of both of us. Um, the minute we saw there's a high demand for the problem that we want to solve, um, we started thinking about who's going to be the first hire for build, helping us build the product. Um, and we came to an a, a unusual conclusion that um, we need someone that's um, a super expert in inside sales. So you would bring in your VP sales when you're ready to sell, right? Like when you're 20 people and have, have a product ready to launch. But instead, that was our first hire. Um, so, so our current VP sales, which is one of the best in our industry, um, is now doing the actual work of selling. But seven months ago, he's helped us build the product because he's also a potential client. That's very clever. I've not heard of a, a, a software startup did that before. It's kind of flipping it on its head. Um, so along this way, are we raising money? Right. So, so we brought him in and we brought our first developer, which is one of the best in Israel, has like 17 years of experience. Um, and we started building the product. Um, and while we're gathering so many potential clients that want to start a design partnership with us, um, we also started sniffing around with investors. You, you're not doing it from from a place of confidence and power because you know it's COVID and people are talking about VCs not even getting their own money from LPs and your people are talking about uh, VCs shrinking um, and starting to worry for their money because no one no one knew where things are going so we we got on the calls very skeptic that we're going to actually raise the big seed during during COVID um, but to our surprise um, we think that the the best investors around. Um, here and in Silicon Valley, where we mostly raise from, um, we think they actually um, invested more. Like this was the past year has been a perfect time for good teams with a real problem they're solving to to raise seed. Um, I see it on a lot of you know people that I know that are founders as well. Um, so the first calls that we had were actually surprisingly good, and they started like a snowball effect. Um, mainly, first of all, it's a team that's been you know doing some. Uh, good things before, so we had like a, we had like a good background. But um, also um, because the minute that the first main investor was in, then all of all of I think the best angels that I know also wanted to be in, and then we just had to stop. Like we had to we had to we stopped talking to investors because we didn't have room for them. It took us like a month end to end to raise the first batch of our seed, which was two point five million, and we were super lucky to to achieve that. And so you said that investors generally were willing to invest more capital. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Um, I just think that the opposite, effect, I think that two extreme things happened to investors during COVID. 
um, the long tail ones, the ones that don't have a lot of deal, you know, the top quality deal flow, the ones that don't have a lot of access to the good founders, they stopped. Like they, they paused everything. They wanted to see where things are going. I think the good ones um, just invested like crazy. Um, you know, NFX, the VC that was our that led our first seed. Um, NFX is based in the Valley and is one of the best VCs around, uh, you know, in my my opinion at least. Um, they did like a crash uh, course of, you know, they, they promised founders. I think it was, you get you get an answer within a week if you submit your deck, and if we want to invest in you, it will take like another week to to invest. So the, I think the top VCs actually started. Uh, leverage in the situation so more founders would approach to them and you know and specifically about our market so because sales have gone totally remote no one has no one had any idea how to even handle it so tools that let vp sales and sales uh, teams to master the remote sales also started blooming so it was also good for us yeah it's crazy hey it makes total sense you've got investors that are looking to capitalize on a situation lots of vcs as you said were in a state of paralysis they just didn't know what to do and a lot of the competition are in, were in a state of paralysis so it makes total sense that you know they were going to be betting on hot startups and investing significant capital but what is surprising is the speed at which everything happens and and how versatile the investment industry was if you can call it that the fact that they're releasing funds within two weeks and everything is happening via Zoom and there's no handshakes, there's no staring into the eyeballs, that to me is fascinating. And it's quite a recurring theme of conversations on the podcast, how investor relations are in some ways just easier over Zoom. The due diligence is more clinical, but that's because it needs to be, but things just happen quicker. And it's almost fascinating as to the human behavior behind that is it because we don't have the same emotions involved and the gut instincts and all of this? Oh, we have to meet for a coffee 10 times. Is that actually improving the way that investors deal with investees and so on? It'd be fascinating to see in the years ahead how much of that type of investor relationship stays in this far more removed kind of remote fashion. Okay, so we're into product build. We're coming towards the back end of last year. Uh, at what point were you guys kind of ready to put your head above the parapet? Uh, put the brand out there, which looks very, very cool, by the way, and just start to let people know what you're doing because I can imagine you had quite a few people peering around curious to see what was happening behind the doors at Walnut. Right, so um, we took a kind of a brave approach into launching, uh, like, yeah, I wouldn't say pre-product, but we launched before we, we really needed to, um, before we were super ready. Um, and the reason it, I always like to be, you know, in the other two companies that I had, I was like the first one to tell a story in what I was doing and to say I'm the first one doing this and that. And it always turned out to be kind of um, uh, profitable to do that. So I, I, you know, I said, let's, let's launch. And my investor was like, you know, hold on. Um, you, you would want to be more prepared for that. Um, but we, we said, okay, let, let's just do that. And, and we launched and lucky for us, that's kind of, everything exploded from there. So uh, we got like 20 articles, you know, PR uh, going about us. And we also had a product hunt uh, launch, which was, I would call it successful because we were like the second month, the second best product of October. Um, and also nominated for uh, the Golden Kitty Awards, um, which we did not win, but just being nominated there also highlights you like, you know, very, you know, very good uh, part of the website. So we got like, I don't know, 
tens of thousands of, of, of B2B traffic. We got hundreds of companies to reach out to us and joined our waiting list, which, you know, I, I thought, wow, I, just before we launched, I thought to myself, I really hope like, I don't know, 20 companies would sign up to our waiting list. Otherwise it would be sad. And, and we ended up seeing like 800 companies. That's crazy. 800. Yeah. Okay. Well, so now you're going to have to use your own technology to uh, nail your demo experience to these companies. Exactly. Um, so you're in a pretty good position and, and Hey, it's one thing that's also become, um, well, such a massive silver lining in a way of, of the last 12 months is that we can get through a lot more work in a day. So that's great when, you know, you and I are building our businesses. Um, but it's also great for those companies that can operate properly during this time. And it's been mostly technology, right? Now, fast forward the year before, I was running a couple of demos online. I'd then go into town and I'd have a face-to-face -face demo. That by nature would take two hours. I had an hour each way on the tube. Sometimes I go back to the office, but some days if it's a really important prospect, I'm doing one demo. I'm driving or I'm on the train and you know, it, it's, it's all that shaking of the hands and doing things the old fashioned way. And hey, I miss that by the way. I still want to shake people's hands sometimes. Um, but all of a sudden, salespeople have never been so productive. They're thrust onto their living room table They've got their laptop and they've got their BDR is booking six, seven, eight demos a day. Are you then seeing sales management suddenly going, well, we've never realized the success rate of this before. So do you think the COVID situation has made people more aware of how many demos are need to be ran in a day and, and how a lot of time is wasted by not demoing properly? Oh yeah, yeah, it was, it was a huge shift. You know, I don't think there's any industry um, that has not been affected for the good or for the bad uh, from this situation. I think that sales, um, people realize how much money they can save, you know, like companies save so much money on not flying around for those meetings on, you know, not going to conferences like physical ones. Um, they are not going to, um, you know, spend a thousand dollars in a bar with your potential client in New York. There's so much money that the companies are saving now on just selling remotely. I doubt that uh, things will go back to how they used to be. Um, it's much, much more efficient. Um, I, like you said, you miss the handshake thing. Also, you know me, I'm a people's person and I, I love these type of things. Um, and I hope that um, it will go back. But um, now that the budgets are being focused on what actually can drive sales, so there's a lot of blooming in the um, you know, remote selling industry. Um, also, you would notice like the most successful, uh, successful companies in our space. So let's take Gong. Um, which is an amazing company in the sales space. Um, so they used to be about, um, a, a, they had like a lot of taglines, a lot of, a lot of um, ways to describe what they're doing. And now if you go onto their different platforms and website, you would see that they're um, the number one platform for uh, remote sales teams. I, I can believe that. So we, um, my last company, we relied quite heavily on Chorus, which yeah. is similar to Gong. I've, I've not actually seen Gong before, but yeah, I can absolutely believe that. Because hey, you have one hour to nail it. And it doesn't matter if you're the most charismatic salesperson and you can charm these buyers in the bar at night, like you said, and drop $1,000 on, on a, a, an amazing evening. All of that is stripped away now. It is me and you on a Zoom, me sharing my screen and demoing. And that's it, you've got one hour. So I would sit there with my team and choreograph it. 
like it was a, a performance on stage. It's exactly the same thing. You've got a potentially high, you've got six figure deals being closed on Zoom. So exactly. absolutely, you know, that, that it makes so much sense having a product like Walnut slot into this mix. On that, as someone that's used lots of sales tools around demos, would a product like Gong slot in with Walnut or does Walnut also take care of some of the audio nature of that as in the tracking of the recording of the call? Right, so that's a good question. Um, first, I'll say that I know uh, the founding team behind Chorus and also Gong here, they're all in Tel Aviv. Um, brilliant people and you know we look up to them and, and they're great uh, role models for us. Um, I would think that Walnut and Gong can kind of uh, support each other because they focus more on the actual words being said and the insights that you heard from clients. Um, and, you know, for example, so uh, if they have a client and um, that client has a thousand salespeople and potential client and, and potential clients are starting to mention in the different calls some new competition that the company has and they had no idea about, you would actually see as an insight, you would see, hey, you have a new competition because your market is talking about them. There's a lot of value that they're driving, um, but they focus mostly on the on the voice and audio and words. Um, we do something totally different. We care only about how you're demonstrating the dashboard, the B2B product you're selling, and to which type of client you're showing it to. And we just want to let you own it. Like you, you can customize it without R&D help. Okay, makes a lot of sense. And yeah, thank you for explaining what Gong and Chorus did for the listeners, because uh, uh, you and I were falling into that direct conversation there. I forgot that people would be listening, wondering what the hell they do. Uh, so here's a question. Um, if I, in the morning, am demoing to someone in construction, and in the afternoon, I'm demoing to someone in medicine, can that VP of sales see a differentiator between the behavior of the salesperson who's successful in medicine versus construction is is that the type of analytics that i could see um yeah so there's what what you would call like a template for a demo we call a storyline so uh the salesperson that you just talked about he can create in like three minutes a little bit different demo scenarios for these two clients the medicine and the first one um and he would just tailor make you know just like a drag and drop like you would do on a wix website you can tell him make it to look a little bit uh, more focused on these clients. Eventually, the VP can see, you know, hopefully if we're working with a company that has 800 salespeople that are doing that, he can see what converted and what did not. And we try to learn why. Like nobody knows what is a good demo. And that's what we're trying to learn as a company. Yeah. Hey, it's, uh, it's absolutely genius. And you can tell um, by the question I'm asking that I can't wait to get my hands on it. So we'll take that conversation offline though. <laughs> so you have, what's next? What's the next few years have in store for Walnut? You've got boots on the ground, currently Tel Aviv, London, New York, uh, and San Francisco. Am I right? Yeah. And uh, what's next in store that you're allowed to tell us? Um, so, so first of all, you know, to continue my story, so after we did that launch, that was, you know, I've been doing marketing for like 12 years and this was one of the best launches that I've, I was lucky to be part of. Um, not because we've done anything really, we've maybe spent $10,000 on our entire launch. It was just a matter of, of market fit, um, and solving a problem. So after that launch, we also uh, were approached by investors and we decided to extend the seed that we've done. So it ended up not being 2.5, it was a 6 million seed. Um, and we also got, we, on, we onboarded a really 
really smart angel investors like the global VP R&D of Google and uh, VP global sales at GitHub um, and the CEO of Wix. And, you know, we formed like a really strong team of backers that are helping us build something that's supposed to change, um, you know, change the industry. Um, and if we look, if we look on to the next years, there, there's no knowing we would just try to dominate the market. Well, uh, the brand looks amazing so far. And as you said, you've got some uh, incredible humans within it and some incredible backers. I suggest everyone takes a look at the website. It's uh, very, very impressive. And hey, I think so many businesses are going to have to adapt the way in which they sell. And it's not just software. Uh, other businesses that are so reliant on face-to-face -face business are going to have to or have had to already adapt the way in which they win that business and become more software orientated. So I guess all roads lead to Walnut, right? Famous uh, saying. <laughs> so you have, you touched on your background as a marketeer and um, you have a fascinating CV. So you mentioned the startup around preventing uh, cyberbullying, which, which is amazing. Uh, and obviously that really strong background as a marketeer. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's go back to, to where it all started for Yoav uh, and talk us through uh, the different businesses that you've started and um, and what's led you to this point now and I guess the differences in starting a business in conventional times uh, to now, aside from the obvious, and what experiences you've picked up along the way that you're now using it in getting uh, Walnut to its next phase of growth. Um, I always say that I started my career by accident because when I was 22, I wanted to do uh, just a little bit of marketing for startups. Um, and here in Tel Aviv, which is, you know, it's such a famous startup nation, um, about 11 years ago, things were a little bit smaller. So not a lot of people were, were doing that, like expert startup marketers, you can call it. Um, so I just started doing that as a freelance. I joined forces with a friend and we were like just two freelancers not having a brand name. We just reached out to several to some startups that we saw raise the seed recently. Um, you know, back then, like a two or three million seed was overwhelming. Um, and we told them, hey, you're, if you're struggling to hire a CMO, then we can take it in a very efficient, um, you know, format and a package. Um, we can take it like as an outsource CMO and we can do your marketing. Um, and, and the thing is that lucky for us, because no one else was doing that and we kind of branded ourselves the right way, we eventually opened the first company in Israel to do that. So we had like 600 clients. Um, we had dozens of employees, offices in London, offices in Manhattan. Um, and it was kind of a pioneering company. Um, so I was the CEO of that for seven years, um, during which I also advised in all kinds of different like accelerators and tech hubs. So overall, I think I saw at least hundreds of startups from all kinds of different situations and phases and you know verticals. And it just got me like a good picture to what I think should be done and should not be done. And um, afterwards, I left after seven years and I joined forces with um, a pretty uh, dominant tech figure here in Tel Aviv that his past startup was sold for like 400 million. Um, and he wanted to save kids from troubles that he saw on social media. So he has two daughters and they were approached by, you know, online uh, it's called like a predator predator is pretty much pretty much a good name for a potential pedophile or a bully that wants to attack a kid in the real life but they start by online conversations 
um, and there's there's a whole a whole tons of mess going on in the social platforms that we don't even know about. So um, it was it's it's a it's a B2B company based on machine learning uh, that's designed to find out uh, when the bad people are actually the bad people and are not disguising behind other profiles. Um, and you know that was a company we raised a pretty significant seed by the way it was like a 15 million seed. Um, a lot of hopes in that company to to work out. But eventually, like I said, you know, in the beginning, for me, it was my time to uh, start my own thing again. So I was not the CEO of the company; I was the, the CMO. Um, and yeah, that's like my—that's the past decade of my life. Well, you don't look very old, you have. So uh, we'll, we'll have to do this again another decade. I'm sure it'll be, uh, there'll be many more stories from that. It's certainly a, a very interesting CV so far, and I definitely recommend people reach out and, and take a look at your background. Um, now. You've been involved in entrepreneurship from since when you started your career. And I guess this is exactly what the Tel Aviv Collective is. Tell us a little more about that. I can see that it's not just Tel Aviv, it's operating in New York City as well. But there's a lot of listeners to the podcast around, well, lots of budding entrepreneurs, right? And I think a big yeah. part of this podcast aim is to uh, inspire other people to just push the button and get busy as we all did last year and it's fantastic so far that there's been a range of guests from seasoned and serial entrepreneurs like yourselves right to those grassroots startups met a university it's locked down so they got busy and, and created a business uh, so it'd be amazing to find out a bit more about the tel aviv collective and, and what goes on there right so after i left my 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 marketing company um, I started what you can call like a co-founder dating, which is what your audience has probably has experience in as well. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a funny situation, but it's really depressing, right? You, you meet all kinds of, for me, it was CTOs because I'm not the CTO, so I had to meet those. And um, you meet a lot of people that are, can complete you in terms of their expertise, but uh, personality-wise, you have no idea what, what are they like. And if you're even thinking on the same page, if you like the same, you know, to solve the same problem, if you're going to survive such a relationship. Um, and, you know, I just read somewhere that in Silicon Valley, like the average from the, from the, from marriage to divorce is four years and from launching a startup to an exit is seven years. So you'd actually have to put more weight into who you're starting a company with. Um, and, you know, so, so I met like a lot of people, super bright people, they sold companies, they worked for Google, Facebook, and, and it was a very um, time in my life. I just, um, me and some friends here in Tel Aviv, we just said, um, let, let's gather a few people into a group. And hopefully these people are like all second timers. Um, so kind of, kind of equal in terms of like expertise and, you know, background. So they've built something, maybe they sold something, maybe they didn't. Um, but we just started meeting like on a weekly basis. And we grew the group like more and more and more. And we saw that um, it turned out to be really helpful in terms of um, meeting people from the same state of mind. And some, several startups have actually started from, from the collective. Um, after I launched my next thing and I left uh, the group or you know, stayed as like an advisor, um, they formed it into more of like an official thing, like with an actual batch. Um, and then I knew, I, I, last I remember, they also wanted to invest a little bit in the batches, like an accelerator. And then when COVID hit, I don't think, um, I think they paused it. 
Um, but if anyone's if anyone's that's uh, listening here would want to just you know brainstorm or get some tips about finding co-founders, I'd I'd be willing to help out a little bit. Yeah, that's great. So um, it's always a question I ask uh, if there are budding entrepreneurs out there, can they reach out on LinkedIn uh, to pick your brains on on how to do this? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and I'll share those details at, at the end of the episode. Uh, and just uh, you, you mentioned when that collective got together, it was all second timers. Uh, it was like a, a divorcees club. <laughs> <laughs> everyone kind of knew knew what they wanted from previous mistakes and it's actually a another interesting theme of the podcast so far is founder relationships sometimes it's conventional we've had a husband and wife team we've had a team from an incubator where no one knows each other or has a business idea until the human relationships formed something i really didn't know much about and then someone like me who gone into business with a friend of mine but one point within that that I never realized was, well, it's, it's quite an obvious one, but not anything that sprung to mind before was founder relationships. And if they're organic and they happen from within the company, often it's sales guy, sales guy, or dev, dev. And it's great that they can do the same thing, but that's not necessarily how you grow a company. You know, you're then going to have to go and find a CTO to, you know, to yin and yang. But also when you have two people that do exactly the same thing, I think there's more of a tendency to, to bump heads because you're going to be like, hey, I wouldn't do it like that. I would do it like this. So you're constantly benchmarking and judging each other's work. So it makes absolute sense to try and be match made with people that have opposing skills. So, Yoav, sign me up. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, I think this is absolutely great. And I think this is one of those to watch over the next few years and I can't wait to see your progress. I think this is going to be huge. Looking forward to seeing you as you progress on your way to unicorn status. What's our parting message for listeners out there, Yoav? Be healthy. Be healthy. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, looking forward to speaking again. Thanks. And uh, yeah, everyone can feel free to reach out if I can be useful in some way. And if not, just follow us. Well, massive thanks to Yoav, great guy, great conversation, and a great product. I think this is gonna be an absolute game changer for the software sales industry. And I for one wished I'd had it the last few years, but I certainly will for the next few years. If you're a VP of sales, I suggest you get straight on over to Walnut, check it out. If you're a junior account executive, I suggest you get straight on over to your VP of sales and get him or her to check it out for you. Might have to do that last bit via Zoom in life circumstances and all that. My biggest takeaway is the importance of building a good network around you. Yoav and his co-founder are seasoned entrepreneurs, but they've still gone out there and built an impressive team. The guys that are building it, the guys that are selling it, but also the investors as well. Investors from every corner of tech to add different perspectives. And we don't all have access to the co-founder of Wix to bring him on as a co-founder, but we do all have access to people around us that can add different opinions, different perspectives, and always add value. Join us next week. We're taking our first trip over to Silicon Valley. Awesome guest. We shall not disappoint. And we're three episodes in now. If you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, please ensure you subscribe. Rate us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Forgive me for any references to snow if it's a sunny day wherever you're listening. Because it's so fledgling, I kind of forgot at the time that the podcast doesn't go out the same day. So it's absolutely pointless me talking about the weather. Anyway, moving on. Make sure you join us next week. Hit that subscribe button and thank you for listening so far.